We're returning after many months to our exposition of the Gospel of John. You may be well served to go back and to listen to a handful of the sermons that we've uh, shared thus far in the first five chapters of John. Not necessary, but could be helpful. But we're going to start back into John chapter 6. Start with a few questions. What do you think are the greatest challenges that we face collectively as a culture? What are the things preventing us, do you think, of achieving, I don't know, a world of peace, a world of equality, a world of prosperity? What do you think it is that are the primary roadblocks to us seeing a widespread happiness and satisfaction? Now, those questions assume that we might be in agreement that we haven't yet arrived, right? Assumes that none of us here this morning think that we have reached, you know, the utopian ideal. Uh, those questions assume that we all recognize that our society, to one degree or another, has really failed to deliver on some of its promises, right? Now, although we may universally agree that society is, to one degree or another, broken, I think this morning we may disagree on what has caused that brokenness. Some of us this morning might look out into the culture and say, man, we've got some serious problems, and may kind of settle and say, well, I think that the cause of our current state of affairs and so many of our problems really boil down to material problems. I mean, what I mean by that is our greatest need as a society is simply to eliminate the disparities between rich and poor. That's the solution. Cost of living is too high. We were already complaining this morning about the cost of rent, right? And I say we because I was involved in that. I don't pay rent. But I was complaining about the cost of uh, housing. That's a big problem here in the city of Windsor. You say, well, you know what the problem is? The problem is the minimum wage is too low. Rent's too high. Minimum wage is too low. Uh, home ownership is out of reach for too many people. We just need to create a society where we have a universal basic income, everybody has a living wage, housing is affordable, and that's going to eliminate so many of our problems. We're going to solve our social ills. So many social ills are the product of poverty, eliminate poverty, and we're good to go. So solving our material problems is what's going to bring happiness and satisfaction. Others might disagree with that and say, no, our problems, I mean, sure, you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have good health care, if you are not doing well physically, now that's the source of the real problem. Sickness, disease, addictions, mental health uh, crisis, all of this, these are where our primary problems reside. And so we must seek to eliminate physical suffering, and then we will arrive at a healthy culture. That's a constant conversation here as well, isn't it, Canada, with our socialized uh, health care. Solving our physical problems is what's going to bring true satisfaction. Now, others of you say, well, I don't think that the problem is material. I don't think the problem is physical. I think at the root of all of this, I mean, behind the material, behind the physical, are political problems. If we just change our politicians and get some guys in there, some women in there that can affect change, then we are on the right track. For the people who think this way, it's political ineptitude or political corruption that has caused all of our problems. These are the people who like 
to tell us all about that on social media. It's political corruption that's caused disparity. It's political meddling in our healthcare system that's caused our problems. The answer, therefore, is political change. We just got to wait for that next great leader, that next great man or woman who will rise up and really bring political revolution. Then we will have true happiness and true satisfaction. Some of you say, well, that's not it at all. It's not material. It's not uh, physical. It's not political. And others may think, you know what the problem is? It's all moral. The problem's all moral. Uh, I mean, yeah, the source, uh, if, if you have politicians who are driven by morality, uh, then we'd be all sad. If our healthcare system was really based upon sound morality, then we would be good to go. If we could just recapture some sense of common morality, then the material and the physical and the political, all those things would take care of themselves. A moral society would seek to eliminate economic disparities, would set right social injustice, would alleviate physical suffering, and would root out political corruption. So there you go. Solve the problem. Just call society back to morality. Then we will have true happiness and true satisfaction. Now, we could go on. Hopefully, some of you are thinking, just screaming out, saying, well, no, the problem's spiritual. Well, congratulations. You don't need the rest of the sermon. Uh, the point is, although we might all agree that the world is broken, I think there's great disparity uh, in uh, how or what we believe is causing that brokenness. With the disagreements over the cause, naturally then flows disagreements over what are the solutions. And consequently, differences over opinions as to where we ought to place our efforts and where we ought to place our hope. If our problems are primarily material, then the solutions are material. So we had to put our efforts towards those solutions. We had to hope that someone might come along who might bring about material uh, change. Likewise, when it comes to the physical and comes to the political and so on, if, if those, that's the source of our problems, then we ought to put our efforts towards solving those problems or even place our hope uh, in uh, individuals or uh, systems that might change in order to affect the moral or the uh, physical or the political. Bottom line is this. This is a key phrase we're going to return to. How we define our greatest challenges determines what we see as solutions and therefore drives where we put our hope and place our efforts. Say that again. How we define our greatest challenges determines what we see as solutions and therefore drives where we put our hope and place our efforts. Or we can put it in the imperative and say, we must properly define our problems if we are to determine the proper solutions and therefore properly decide where to put our hope uh, and place our efforts. Well, this morning, it's we're going to see a passage this morning in which we're going to see massive crowds who are following Jesus. And within those massive crowds exists a diversity of opinions regarding the source of their societal problems and what are the solutions. And we're going to learn from that diversity. We're going to see that despite the differences in the crowds that were following Jesus in John 6, many of them did see Jesus as the solution to their problems. However... Not because they had an accurate or biblical or scriptural understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, but because they projected upon Jesus 
the profile of a Messiah who would solve the problems that they identified as the chief causes of the brokenness of their societies. So how's that relevant to us? Well, although most of us this morning, I think probably in this room, are Christians, we too can be guilty of misplacing the cause of our problems and therefore misplacing our hope and uh, misdirecting our efforts in this life. We can be guilty of seeing Jesus not for who he is, but for who we want him to be. Like the crowds in Jesus' day, we must accurately recognize our greatest need and see that Jesus is the perfect satisfaction of those needs so that we might place all of our hope and trust in him alone. There's your proposition. So John 6, let's start reading verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountains, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of, his, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may, may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, jump down to verse 24. We're going to come back to the passage we skipped in a later sermon, but jump down to verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, Jesus had crossed over the Sea of Galilee at this point, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son believes in Him. For everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now, notice in verse 2, it says that there was large, there were large crowds following Jesus. For what reason? Because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. And so, these miracles that Jesus was doing at the time, healing sick uh, from disease and so on, uh, I mean, just piques the interest of the crowd to the point now where masses are following him, hoping to be healed. Also notice in verse 4, it says what? That this was Passover time. So massive crowds because of the news that's spreading about his ability to heal, and then also massive crowds because pilgrims are coming for the Passover festival. So the population of Jerusalem here and the surrounding areas are just swelling with people coming for Passover. And so this is a perfect time, uh, really, for Christ to do what he's about to do, uh, to give an awesome lesson about true satisfaction. So... Passover also, you think about it, Passover was a time where these individuals are not only there together, um, thousands upon thousands of individuals, but think about the mentality at the time. Their mind is on Passover. Their mind is, is, is upon God's uh, faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness to His people. Their mind is, is upon that, uh, just remembering that God delivered His people uh, from slavery or captivity there at the Exodus. And so that's fresh on the minds of the individuals there for Passover. So the rumors of Christ's miracles are spreading among the locals, yes, and then now that's spilling over into those visitors who are there for the Passover. So there's a thick atmosphere here of curiosity, a thick atmosphere of even hope among the locals and the visitors alike. Now, just a couple minutes here, we want to talk about kind of what the makeup of this these crowds would have been there in the first century on this Passover. There would have been represented within those crowds men and women uh, who had some differences. Jews, yeah, all Jews there for the Passover, but there would have been some differences among them. Different opinions regarding the nature of the Messiah and just what sort of kingdom the Messiah would usher in. The differences among those in the crowd could really be seen, I think, primarily uh, maybe a good litmus test uh, to see where their differences are is kind of how they would respond to the reality of Roman rule. That, that's a good way to kind of see uh, where these people uh, settled down uh, as far as their beliefs are concerned. We won't go too much into history about how Rome came to uh, control the area. Uh, but when Roman rule began in Judea, it really began with the demand for political subjugation. It, it, it began with an utter act of disrespect as uh, one of the... Uh, uh, Roman rulers mili- during one of the military campaigns went into the temple and desecrated the temple. So like off to a really bad start here between the Romans and the Jews. The treatment of the Jews by Rome, uh, the initial uh, Roman general Pom- Pompey who came in and sieged Jerusalem and subsequent Roman rulers uh, really varied between toleration to outright antagonism. Burdensome taxation, ever-present Roman soldiers, the imposition of Roman law, the introduction of pagan temples, the spread of Greco-Roman culture, Roman appointment of high priests, pressures to participate in emperor worship, all of this is happening. Those are just some of the issues that contributed to ongoing, an ongoing atmosphere of tension between Rome and between the Jews. Now, 
As mentioned, the Jews of the day were not one homogenous group. There was diversity among the Jews, both politically and theologically. The pressures of Roman rule forced many of those differences to the surface. Now, could you imagine, I'm sure none of us have any of this experience, where some societal pressures press upon a people who generally, you can say, have a lot in common. But those external pressures just exacerbate differences, which then all come to the surface. Do you experience anything like that? Maybe starting in 2020? Roman rule had that effect upon the Jews. Even otherwise like-minded people began to focus on their differences, their common beliefs and their goals. Although they are like-minded in so many ways, being governed by hostile forces exposed differences in opinion regarding how they should respond. And this helps us to, to kind of see the makeup of the crowd. So yeah, within the crowd, you would have had those that uh, you have come to know as the Pharisees. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect known for their focus on scriptural interpretation, the meticulous keeping of the law and tradition. Not, they weren't all that politically motivated. Sometimes by convenience they were, sure. Uh, they were not beyond fomenting crowds uh, against Rome when their religious sensibilities were violated. For instance, in, uh, attempts to compel emperor worship, the placement of idols in Jerusalem, the immoral behavior of rulers, all these things might get the Pharisees worked up enough uh, to foment the crowds. But to the Pharisees, the greatest problems among the Jews were theological error. In moral impurity. They're calling people back to fidelity to the scriptures and to tradition. That's what they're all about. The Pharisees look forward to the day when the Messiah would come to restore pure worship. When the Messiah would come and reward the faithful. That's what the Pharisees were waiting for. Faithfulness to them being defined by a strict adherence, not just to the letter of the law, but to the uh, uh, every letter of their tradition. Of course, if such a restoration were to happen, it would also require what? the removal of those immoral, idolatrous uh, rulers uh, from Rome. Since the Pharisees held the greatest influence over Jewish culture of the day, the crowds there following Jesus would have largely shared the views of the Pharisees. But beyond the Pharisees, you also had another group, the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not have much direct influence over the day-to-day lives of the Jews. Uh, These are the elites. These were those uh, really primarily associated with temple worship and the priestly offices, part of the social elite. The Sadducees, theologically, however, did not believe in the afterlife, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in coming rewards or judgments. And this is why, unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees were actually very politically active. Why? Well, because if their mind is not set on the heavenly, if their mind is not set on the spiritual, then what's left, they're going to focus upon the earthly. They're bent on maintaining their earthly power. Very pragmatic also. They're less concerned with, with religious purity and more concerned with preserving their influence and position in society. They're more likely to cooperate with Rome, even if it meant compromising their religious purity. To the Sadducees, they're, they're, they prefer just to maintain the status quo. It's more important to them than religious principle. And so the Sadducees' willingness to cooperate with Rome also stemmed from the denial of a coming Messiah. They were not looking forward to the appearance of some divine deliverer. They were unhappy with the destabilizing effects of like these messianic movements that would rise up. They were more concerned with losing the power that was meted out to them by the Romans uh, than by seeing God's kingdom established on earth. 
Pharisees, Sadducees, there's another group, the Essenes. The Essenes looked upon the Pharisees and Sadducees as kind of complicit in the corruption of Judaism and opposed the encroaching kind of influence of the Greco-Roman culture, the Hellenization of their culture. For these reasons, the Essenes were those separatists, uh, really, who even removed themselves from mainstream Judaism. They separated themselves from mainstream Judaism, mainstream temple worship, and really society in general. They chose instead to live communally in strict sectarian societies. These are those who are responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. The most... uh, The Essenes believed, yeah, in the imminent arrival of the Messiah, kind of like the Pharisees. Uh, They believed that the Messiah was going to bring judgment, that the Messiah was going to establish a kingdom, that the Messiah would institute a purified priesthood, the Messiah would sit on the throne of David. They believed all these things. If there were Essenes in the crowds that followed Jesus, his frequent calling out of the Pharisees and the Sadducees over their hypocrisy, I mean, that would have resonated with them. They might have been thinking at that time, okay, he may be our guy. You got the Sadducees, you got the Pharisees, you got the Essenes. And then there's another group who is more extreme uh, called the Zealots. The Zealots. This, uh, these were that political, religious movement bent on liberating Israel from foreign rule, really by any means necessary. They fervently believed that Israel was to be ruled by God alone, and they're willing to engage even in armed resistance, even what we might frankly call terrorism, to make it happen. It's their penchant for revolts and their uprisings that eventually led Rome to destroy the temple in 70 AD. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. But then even beyond that, you just have the, you're talking about the makeup of the crowd, you just have the everyday Jew. They're not really politically persuaded one way or the other. They're just trying to, just trying to hack it, like day to day, trying to provide for their needs, uh, trying to deal with the struggles of life. For those, the coming Messiah, in their minds, would finally right those injustices and advocate for the poor, maybe heal diseases and overthrow oppression. So, I mean, there's a variety, and there's others there that, that would have been there. But all these are represented within the crowds following Jesus. Now, look back to our text in, in verse 5. Jesus, looking upon these crowds, or this crowd, asked Philip a question, an intentionally absurd question. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And of course, he says this to test him because Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. Philip answers, listen, even eight months' wage would not be enough just to give everyone a taste of bread. It's an intentionally absurd question because Jesus, frankly, is about to perform a miracle. Now, how many people were there present? It says 5,000 in the crowd. It doesn't say 5,000 in the crowd. It says 5,000 men. 5,000 men could potentially be what? If each man had a wife, well, that's 10,000. If they had one child, that's 15,000, right? I mean, you can just go on up from there. And so 20,000, perhaps, who knows? But there's far more than 5,000 there. So Jesus is saying to Philip, hey, how can we kind of like cater 20,000 people right now? Uh, Where can we get enough bread for all of them? And of course, Philip catches on. This is an impossibility. So verse 8 one of his disciples, Andrew Simon's Peter brother, says there's a boy who has five barley loaves, two fish, but what are they uh, for so many? You say, why does he even mention it, right? Uh, but he does. And so uh, what does Jesus say? He says, well, have the people sit down. 
And so all 20,000 or whatever the number is, thousands upon thousands, they all sit down. There's grass there. They all sit down on the grass. Then Jesus takes the loaves. He gives thanks. He distributes to all those who are seated and also the fish. And what does it say in verse 11? They had as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, it says, as much as they wanted, they've eaten their fill, they're full, uh, would gather up the leftovers. Now, I don't know about you, but if you go somewhere where there's free food and you're hungry, you're going to eat as much as you can. I mean, this is free food. You don't, I mean, you're stuffing your pockets and, uh, right, your wife's purse is three times the size it was when you came in. Uh, you're telling the kids, you know, eat, eat some more, eat some more, because, you know, you won't have to feed them when you get home. Uh, so, and it says they ate as much as they could. And what does it say, verse 12? that there's leftovers, 12 baskets full of leftovers. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, remember that this is Passover time. So thoughts of Jewish history are there. Thoughts of God's faithfulness is there. But thoughts of God's miraculous provision and deliverance of his people were fresh in the minds of the crowds. And so Jesus performs this miracle, and this miracle would have been all the more poignant considering it was Passover time. Besides this, maybe the Pharisees who are so familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, maybe what came to mind was a miracle in 2 Kings. Because in 2 Kings, we read about the prophet Elisha. Elisha had 20 loaves of barley and some fresh grain to serve 100 men. And it says this in 2 Kings 4.42, Elisha says to a servant, give to the men that they may eat. But a servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of Yahweh. Well, isn't that interesting? Perhaps some in the crowd, again, maybe among the Pharisees, would recognize that Jesus just performed a miracle similar to the miracle of Elisha, but on a far greater scale. Elisha, a hundred men with some barley loaves. Jesus, 20,000 men and women and children. Uh, So at least the crowd might be able to conclude that Jesus is at least a prophet greater than Elisha and that the Lord was working through Jesus just as the Lord was working through Elisha. We know for sure that some in the crowd responded to Jesus' miracle by thinking of Old Testament scriptures. Because in verse 14, look what it says. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. And so, yeah, they're ripe to try and figure out who Jesus is and, and thinking through their own scriptures to try to figure this whole thing out. And here some conclude he's the prophet. Well, what's that talking about? The prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, They are right in what they have spoken, and I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So here's a long-standing prophecy stretching all the way back to Moses. 
Moses is saying the day is coming where God will raise up a prophet just like me. God will put his words in his mouth and he will require obedience from all. And if uh, the people do not obey this prophet, I will require it of him. There's going to be judgment. And so this became known as a messianic promise, a messianic prophecy. And so here some are saying, he's got to be that guy. This Jesus must be that promised prophet. And so now, think about this, in the minds of the people, they're now associating Moses and Jesus. Moses and Jesus. That's going to come up again in a little bit. The Jews were still waiting for that prophet and understanding that maybe this is it. Now, we know that the people in the crowd are thinking that Jesus... Or it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So it gives you a sense of what was the prevalent view of the Jews of the day. That prophet's going to come, and he's going to be a ruler. He's going to be a leader. Uh, he's going to demand obedience from all. And so when th- he's here, so let's make him king. Well, Jesus is not going to be made king by force, and so uh, it doesn't happen. So what do we have thus far? We have a people following Jesus because they saw him, what? He can heal. He's the solution to all of our physical ills. We have people following Jesus because they believe he's the solution to their political woes. He's that prophet. He's here. We can make him king. And then we also have those who believe that Jesus is going to be the uh, solution to their material needs, as we're going to see in just a moment. Look in verse 24. It says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are, not, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So what's that? Well, again, that's people just following Jesus because they want to be materially, materially filled. I mean, he's, he's that source uh, of uh, an endless supply of bread. And so you have those following him for the physical, those following him for the political, and those following him for the material. Now, you may encounter this in your own life. Those who claim to be Christians, who say, I follow Jesus because I believe he's a physical healer. I'm in it for the healing. Others might say, well, I follow Jesus because he's Lord, he's political ruler. Others might say they follow Jesus because he's the material provider. And so those follow him because they want healing, those who follow him because they want stuff, those who follow him because, hey, they want to follow a political movement. But look in verse 27, that Jesus speaks to a crowd made up of these types of individuals. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now remember what we said in our introduction. We said that this was the phrase we're going to return to. How we define our greatest challenges determines what we see as solutions and therefore drives where we put our hope and place our efforts. What Jesus is saying here to the crowd is, listen, you have misplaced notions as to your greatest need. Therefore, you have also misplaced all of your efforts. And so what he's saying is what? He's saying what you require is eternal life. 
I am the source of that eternal life. And so what? Don't work for food that perishes, but put all your efforts towards what? Eventually, he's going to show that the work which they ought to be doing is simply belief in him. Belief in him. What Jesus is saying to the crowd is, you have a misunderstanding of your greatest need, and you are therefore misplacing your hope in your efforts. You're working for material things. You're placing your hope in me only as temporal provision. Instead, he's saying, recognize that your greatest need is eternal life, and your aim should be to believe in me as the only source of that life. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So if you're here this morning, maybe you have some type of background where you're part of some religious system that really focuses on you being a good boy or a good girl, or you maintaining good works and trying to convince you that maybe if you're good enough, you can attain salvation or attain heaven. Uh, listen, what is, what is Jesus' response? When somebody asks him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What's Jesus' response? This is the work of God. And you're thinking, well, I would love to have a checklist right now so I can just check it all off and know that I am in good standing with God. That's not what he does. This is the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. That's it. Believe in him whom he has sent. What he's going to show us is that he is the one upon whom the Father has set his seal. What he means by that is... God the Father has attested to the reality that Jesus is the one. He's the one sent by the Father. He's the one who can grant eternal life. Uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through Him. So what is the work that you ought to be doing? What is the work of God? What does God the Father require of you? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. This was true for those following Jesus for material things, as much as it was true for those looking for physical healing, as much as it was for those looking for an earthly leader. All the Jews making up that massive crowd needed to understand that their greatest need was spiritual. Not physical, not material, not political. No physical, material, or political solution would bring true satisfaction, nor would it cure the world's ills. What they and all men and all of us need is what? Eternal life, eternal life. And that life comes only through Jesus. It was this understanding that Jesus was setting the stage for when he had 20,000 people all sit down on the grass at the same time. What was he doing? A diverse crowd with diverse opinions, diverse understandings of what the Messiah should be or whether there even was a Messiah, diverse understandings and opinions as to what the greatest challenges of their society was. And at that moment, Jesus has them all sit down, all at the same time. Why? Because at that moment, they all had a common need. They were all hungry. And so all of their needs aligned, despite all of their differences at that moment. Jesus has them sit down, and then what does he do? He miraculously provides for them to satisfy that common need. What is it? This is an object lesson showing them that they all have one common need and he is the source of the solution and the fulfillment of that need. He's the one who can truly satisfy their needs. So whether men, women, children, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, those with no political persuasion at all, they all had a common need and Jesus was the one who could satisfy it. The real message was that all were in need of eternal life, and Jesus Christ was the provision of that life. 
And so through that miracle, Jesus shows us that He is the source of ultimate satisfaction. He is the one who answers man's greatest needs. All people should therefore place their hope in Him alone. Further, they should place their hope in Him for the right reasons. Not because He's physical healer, which He is. Not because He's material provider, which He is. Not because He's the ultimate ruler, which He is. But because He's the one sent by the Father to give eternal life to all who believe in Him. Fortunately, many in the crowd still didn't get this. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Like, what, what do you think just happened, right? He feeds 20,000 people with a little bit of fish and bread. Okay, what sign do you do? You know why they're asking this? They're asking this because they want more bread. Seriously, that, that's why they're asking. They just want more bread. Because they say, what work do you perform? And then they give them a suggestion. Oh, we have an idea. How about this one? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're just there for the bread. They know that he is claiming to be the son of man, because he makes that explicit. They know he's claiming to be the one sent by God. He's made that explicit. They know he's claiming to be the one attested to by the Father as the source of eternal life, because it says it in the text that he's the one upon whom the Father's set his seal. Yet their minds are still stuck on the temporal, the material. They're still stuck on the fact that Jesus has the power to provide physical bread. Really quite sad. What are they asking here in verse 30? Verse 31. Remember I said that they're suddenly now associating Jesus with Moses? Moses predicts that this prophet's going to come. And what does it say? It's going to be a prophet like Moses, one like me, Moses says. So they're already beginning to kind of say, okay, if he's the one, then there's an association with Moses. So so now here they say, well, wait a second, Moses gave us bread from heaven. So then you're a prophet like him, so you can give us more bread. But verse 32, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Now, they're making a parallel between Moses giving bread and Jesus giving bread, and they're wrong, and Jesus is going to correct them. He says, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here Jesus is correcting them. You are comparing Jesus to Moses. Moses gave bread so Jesus can give bread. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Moses didn't give you bread. The Father from heaven gave you that manna. So the Father from heaven gave you bread. He did that then. The Father from heaven is still giving you bread. Except now it's not manna. He says, it's me. Don't look at me as the one who provides the bread. Instead, look at the Father as the one who provides the bread and understand that I am the bread. I am the bread. Verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. It reminds me of the, of the, of the woman at the well, right? Give us this, let me drink of this water always. But they're still not getting it because of verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Get your mind off physical bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He talks about bread and water there, hunger and thirst. Why? Because he's saying I'm the ultimate source of satisfaction. All satisfaction ultimately comes through me. 
He says, but I said to you that, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Christ is the true source of satisfaction because he gives eternal life. It's him and him alone who deserves all of our hope and trust. Uh, when one believes in him, they're finally made spiritually whole, will forever, believe, forever be spiritually satisfied. Now, remember they said, give us this bread always. And now Jesus says what? I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. In other words, he's saying this. You are asking for what has already been offered to you. You want the bread that truly satisfies. He's saying, well, here I am. I am that bread. You want it for yourself? Well, believe that I have been sent by the Father and that I'm the sole source of eternal life. That's how you partake of this bread, which is really your greatest need. Yet, despite that free offer, they still don't believe. The reality is, I mean, we can't be too hard on them because, I mean, we see this all around us as well. We see a culture, we see a people, and even us as believers can be guilty of constantly searching for satisfaction in other sources, completely missing the fact that we have the source of true satisfaction already given to us. Jesus then, after rebuking them for their unbelief, ensures that no one can go away thinking that this unbelief in some way is thwarting God's plan to give eternal life to all who believe in Him. Because in verse 37, He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. You're not coming to me, but all who the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not yet assured that you have believed in Christ as Savior and Lord, this is the promise. The promise is come to Jesus as the sole source of eternal life. And what does He say? I will never cast you out. I will never cast you out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, you have such privilege this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, or maybe you have been involved with some form of Christianity, but you've been involved in it in such a way, in some place where they have not made the gospel explicit for you. I mean, here it is. I mean, you have Jesus explicitly saying, this is the will of God. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. You can have assurance. And we've already said it doesn't come by work. He said, this is the work of God that you believe. What does He say here? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should not have eternal life. Believe what? Believe that He's the one sent by the Father and He's the sole source of eternal life and that faith in Him results in one receiving that eternal life. What will the consequence be? I will raise Him up on the last day. The promise of resurrection. We'll come back to this passage probably in a future sermon. But for now, it's enough to say that Jesus, again, has offered Himself as the sole source of all satisfying eternal life to all who believe in Him. Yes, sadly, those whom he's conversing with. By the way, this passage gets worse and worse. We're not going to get to it today, but it gets worse, especially in John 6, 66. It gets bad. But uh, the sad thing is these who are hearing this are refusing to believe. The sad thing is they were willing to believe in Jesus, but only insofar as Jesus fit the mold, their preconceived notion of what the Messiah should be. They concluded what their greatest problems were, which means that they placed their hope in an anticipated Messiah that would mold to be the one, frankly, would solve all of their problems. 
The problem is that their hopes and desires were misplaced. They had misdiagnosed their real problem and were only willing to believe in Jesus insofar as he could solve those problems. So, as we come to the end here, my question for us this morning is this. As we think about our own lives and we think about society at large, perhaps we found ourselves deceived into placing our hopes in something other than Jesus. I think that's the source of so many of our personal struggles with sin, is that we are seeking to find satisfaction somewhere other than Jesus, or putting our hope in something as if it can truly satisfy, when really Jesus has already given himself to us. And so the question we need to ask ourselves when we find ourselves tempted or drawn away to sin is simply, how does Jesus satisfy this longing that I'm satisfying in some illegitimate way? Perhaps we're guilty of inventing a Jesus which solves all of our problems and then placing our trust in that Jesus of our own imaginations. So some questions. Have you been caught up potentially in materialism? Believing that if only you had a bit more, you would be happy? Just need more bread. Just give me more bread. Just give me more bread. Have you convinced yourself that money and stuff is the pathway to satisfaction? Have you allowed your wrong thinking to affect the way you think about Jesus, seeing him primarily as the one who provides that stuff? Well, Matthew 6.19, Jesus says plainly, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Get your mind off of this world. Jesus didn't come so that we can accumulate stuff on earth. On the contrary, he came to break the grasp that we have upon this world in earthly treasures and call us to turn our gaze upon him. Our hearts ought to be on the eternal and not the temporary. Next question. Now, this is going to be a little bit sensitive. But I think this could also lead to misconceptions as to our greatest needs and therefore alter the way we look at Jesus. Are you one who has frequent health struggles? Struggles, health struggles among your, among, among your loved ones? Have you become so fixated on those earthly struggles when it comes to your health that you have begun to see Jesus primarily as a spiritual healer, or I'm sorry, as a physical healer instead of a spiritual healer? Now, Jesus heals. I, I believe God heals. Absolutely. We pray for healing, yes, but we don't have the promise. We don't have the promise of physical healing. But we do have the absolute promise of what? What does it say in verse 40? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. We do not have the promise of physical healing, but we do have the absolute promise of future resurrection. Although God can and does heal, we do not have the guarantee of earthly healing. But you can have the absolute guarantee of spiritual resurrection if you believe in Jesus. Next question. Have you become convinced that the solution to our problems in this world, or even your problems personally, are primarily political? Do you find yourself placing your hope in a political system, pegging your hopes in some future political ruler? some political leader who will finally be able to turn our country around. I was struck the other day driving to work. I don't listen to the radio a lot anymore, uh, but I was listening to 760 WJR out of Detroit, and I was listening to the morning hosts, and I heard they were talking about politics, 
And one of the female hosts said, I just wish that some leader would rise up that we could all get behind. That's so dangerous. That's so dangerous. What, What is that? Our hopes are all pegged upon politics. So many of our societal ills will be solved if we could just have some leader that we could all get behind. It's that type of desperation that has learned, led to totalitarianism, authoritarianism, and all sorts of other uh, issues. Uh, people's desperation for some political leader who could solve all of their problems. How can you tell that maybe you've been caught up in the political? Do you find yourself emotionally captive to political conversations? When you see the political direction of our country shifting towards the, you know, the other side, do you find yourself angry? Do you find yourself discouraged? Remember what Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 18? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. In our passage, he won't be made a king by force. And in John 18, he's saying, no, it's not going to happen by force. He's bringing a kingdom and is primarily spiritual in this phase of that kingdom. It will be physical later when Jesus rules and reigns over a new heaven and a new earth. He's saying he's not going to be made king by force. And we are not to seek to bring about some type of spiritual kingdom on earth by force. Yeah, we should advocate for righteousness. Yes, we should exercise our civic responsibilities. But no, we are not those who establish an earthly kingdom, uh, and especially not by force. Last question. As you consider the state of our society, are you determined that our problems are primarily moral in nature? Have you become caught up in the battle over moral issues? pushing back against the moral slide of the culture. I mean, that's the answer to our problems, right? We just need to turn all these things around, and you actually see a rise of non-Christian moral leaders, right? You might have a favorite Canadian psychologist who's one of these. Uh, your favorite uh, moral teacher who's what? Just calling a new generation back to what I would say is just Judeo-Christian morality. Like, get your own morality. Don't steal, you know. No, that's, it's still good. It's still good. But calling a culture to uh, adopt a morality, but separated from Jesus Christ and separated from eternal life, is just moral reformation, which is just going to create a culture of nominalism and a people then who are what? Self-righteous instead of genuinely righteous through genuine salvation. Look at Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 13. This is what Peter says. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth right? Spiritual priority, eternal perspective. We have our hope set on a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The day is coming when righteousness will rule, right? Righteousness will rule. The new heavens, the new earth, uh, uh, over which Jesus Christ rules and reigns, it will be marked by righteousness. That day is coming. So what then do we do? Do we just, you know, labor to make sure it happens uh, by fighting an immoral culture and calling it back to Christian morality? Well, look what Peter, Peter says in verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. Therefore, since we're hoping for that new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. He says, take care of yourself. Get your own life in order, Right? You'd be, worried, you'd be worried about the spots in your life. You'd be worried about the blemishes in your life. And you'd be worried about whether or not you're dwelling in peace, right? So, so believers, uh, what? Live to the glory of Christ now, right? So, so that's how we live in this life. And we look forward to that place where righteousness dwells.
So, and he says what? And be at peace. Don't war. Don't battle. Don't be confrontational. Be at peace. Be diligent in what? Cleaning up the moral life of your neighbor? No. Going to battle against the school board? No. Take care of your own life. Live for the glory of Christ. So again, in conclusion, how we define our greatest challenges determines what we see as solutions and therefore drives where we put our hope and place our effort. At this point, we can fill that out and say, our greatest challenge is the need for eternal life. Jesus is the solution, and therefore we should focus our attention and efforts upon him. The fact is Jesus is healer. Jesus is provider. Jesus is ruler. But Jesus is to be believed upon as the one sent by the Father to satisfy man's greatest need, which is for eternal life. This morning, you and I need Jesus because we need eternal life. To look anywhere else for ultimate satisfaction is futile. To place our hope elsewhere is futile. Jesus and Jesus alone has what our soul truly longs for. Beyond us, we can say that Jesus actually is exactly what the world needs. Political revolution won't solve our problems. Moral reformation won't solve our problems. Scientific breakthroughs won't solve our problems. Economic abundance won't solve our problems. Jesus and Jesus alone has the answer to man's ultimate problems. What we should long for is a day where like those 20,000 people who all sat down at the same time with the common need, what we should long for is a day when our culture realizes their common need for Jesus where they can all sit together at his feet and receive from him what? What they really need, which is eternal life. And our responsibility is to bring that message to the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the eternal life that you have brought to bear upon the world through your Son. First of all, Lord, we just thank you for those of you, those of us who have come to see Jesus as the sole source of eternal life, those in whom you have uh, graciously granted faith, we, we thank you. We don't take any, we don't take any uh, credit for our own salvation, but recognize it's all a product of your goodness and that no one can come to Jesus except you draw them. So we thank you for salvation. Pray that you'd help us now to continue to live and to understand how Jesus is the source of true satisfaction. Even as genuine believers, we fall prey to uh, finding satisfaction or trying to find satisfaction in other things. And uh, some even believers have developed habits of sin in their lives, seeking satisfaction elsewhere, not realizing that we have been given all that we need. So like these individuals asking for bread, well, the truly satisfying bread was right in front of them. We do the same thing at times. So help us to see areas in which we have failed to be satisfied in Christ. Uh, help us to ask ourselves the question of how Jesus satisfies us at that point of desire where we're satisfying it illegitimately. And then, Lord, we pray for this morning for those who are not yet Christians. Maybe they have a Christian background. Maybe they've thought of themselves as Christians, but frankly, they really haven't understood the gospel biblically. So help them to see uh, what it is to be saved. Help them to see that your will is that uh, we believe in Jesus by faith, and that's how one receives eternal life. Uh, if someone here has been victimized by a religious system that has told them they got to work, they got to be good enough, maybe they found themselves on, on 
on that cycle of trying and trying and never quite being sure whether they have a relationship with you or not, I pray you would free them from that captivity, help them to see that salvation comes by faith in Jesus alone. Uh, and I pray that you would save souls that way. And these who trust Jesus, I pray that they'd be baptized in his name, making their, their faith known. Lord, we thank you for this. And again, we just thank you so much for Jesus. That, uh, thank you for the eternal life that you provided for us through him. And I pray that you'd help us now to live as those uh, who recognize Jesus as your son and the only all-satisfying source of life. We thank you for all of this in his name. Amen.